we would just like to take a moment to warn listeners that this episode will contain content that may be confronting to hear. Listener discretion is advised. Hi listeners, I'm Izzy, my pronouns are they and them. Welcome to the Critical Conversations for Social Work podcast. This is Joella. Before we start, we'd like to acknowledge the country that we're recording this episode on today and pay our respects to the Turrbal and Yagara peoples and their elders, past, present and emerging by committing to always remembering that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hi listeners, welcome to the Critical Conversations for Social Work podcast. My name is Chen Li and my pronouns are she and her. I am a first year Master of Social Work student from QUT. Before we start, I would like to first acknowledge the First Nations people of the land we are recording this podcast on, the Turbo and Yagra people, and pay respects to elders, past and present, and emerging leaders, and to acknowledge that these lands were never ceded. I'm here today with a fabulous social worker and harm reductionist educator, Brooke. It's wonderful to have you on the podcast, Brooke. How are you today? I'm very good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, great. Thank you so much for joining us today. I think a great place to start a conversation today. Can you please tell me and the listeners a bit about yourself and how you got into the work you do in social work? Yes. It's a little bit of a journey. Yeah. It all began actually at QUT studying the creative industries. Yeah. And I was focusing in on festival and event management. Oh, cool. And interdisciplinary work back when I was bright-eyed 19-year-old and raving a lot and going to festivals, I thought I really wanted to be a festival yeah. organiser. Oh, yeah, cool. So that's where I was aiming for. I did event and festival management for quite a while and then I've also got quite a strong social justice mm-hmm. uh, value sort of system within me yeah. uh, and that's where I got led down the path of I studied art therapy and then did my Masters of Social Work Ooh. to really help some of the projects that I was starting along the way. Oh, yeah, it is quite a journey (laughs) going from, yeah. (laughs) Okay. I know I introduced you as the harm reduction educator, Mm -hmm. and I'm curious about that as well. I'm sure my listeners as as well. Um, Can you tell us a bit about what's harm reduction? Sure. Yes. Harm reduction... Harm reduction actually within Australia, it sits under the national drug strategy that the Australian government implemented in 1985. And there are three pillars that sit there. So there's supply reduction, demand reduction and harm reduction. And harm reduction focuses on providing education, support and assistance to people using drugs. So it's acknowledging that people are going to use drugs, people may not want to stop using drugs. So what are safer measures that we can implement? And then harm reduction, if we look at it in other forms, harm reduction was introduced, say with driving cars, people back in the day, there was no seatbelts. So to create safer road safety, Mm. people implemented seatbelts. When we think about it with safer sex practices, there was bloodborne viruses, AIDS. So a harm reduction form is implementing things like condoms and safer sex supplies. So harm reduction in the form of drug and alcohol is about providing clean equipment. So that might be needle and syringes. It might also be providing 
very factual, unbiased information to people about drug use, so safer dosing, mm. maybe what not to mix it with, tips on how to prevent maybe overheating or all, all sorts of things. So oh. that's where I sit as a harm reduction educator is providing those Oh, that's really some awesome work you're doing. It's what I'm hearing is you're doing this to, instead of preventing people from using drugs, actually you are educating them to how to use it properly. And they, whether they want quit it or they want to, like, how to use it properly, it all depends on their own decision. It's like... Self-determination. Yes, exactly, yes. exactly. That's really some cre- creative work and a critical work you're doing as well. That's really amazing. And speaking of creative work, would you like to tell me us a bit more about the creative work that you do in the programs that you're, you started and or you developed? Yes, sure. So I definitely use a big combined mesh of all the skills that I've learned over my years. Yeah. So drawing on my sort of creative brain, my entrepreneurial brain, but also my social justice, my advocating. I'm a very good organizer, highly organized person. Yeah. And and then drawing on a lot of my social work and art therapy practices. I combine a lot of those in whatever it is I'm doing, whether it's creating resources or when I first began, when I was running rave events over in Canada, I started to see that there was a lot of social issues happening at a lot of the parties that we were um, providing. We would run these big sort of free raves. But what I was witnessing was a lot of drug use. And when I was doing this, it was over in Canada. So drugs were very cheap and very available. Mm -hmm. And so... The drug use over there was eye-opening compared to over here in Australia where um, going out clubbing, going out, it was very much heavily alcohol-infused nights and you'd maybe come across some MDMA or these types of things. But over in Canada, my eyes were just open to the very broad amount of substances that were being used at parties. Also, a lot of people extremely young when they start partying over there, so 15, 16, 17 And then there would be lots of homeless kids, especially in Montreal. There's a really big anarchist movement of young Mm -hmm. people. Big screw the system. We're also moving out of home because we don't agree with our parents' values. So we would have a lot of street kids, punks and anarchists come to a lot of our parties as well. So I started to witness a lot of these like social things happening within the events. And I also didn't feel super comfortable because when I went into running events, I was like wanting to replicate these amazing creative experiences that I had felt in my early years of going to festivals. Yes. Big sound systems. I'm obsessed with sound systems. I loved all the colours, the projections, lights. I'm obsessed with lasers as well. So I I wanted to give people these types of like really fun experiences. Mm -hmm. And instead, I felt more like I wouldn't have called myself an event organiser. I felt like I was like a drug-taking event (laughs) organiser. So I was like... I felt a little bit like at, uh, I felt a few like issues with that, but also our own crew were participating in a lot of this as well. So I was just like, I felt like it just really wasn't a sustainable career um, that I had picked. Yeah. And so I had a few like big moments of have I totally gone down the wrong path of my life? And then after doing a bit of reflection, I dreamt up of safe spaces within events. Because a lot of the time when I was walking around on the dance floor talking to young people, even about drug use, a lot of the time it was because they were bored. And it's really, you're doing the same thing every weekend. You're standing there Mm. watching a DJ. There's not really much activity for you to do. I was always a dancer, so I just used to dance my ass off like Uh. all night. Whereas if you're not a dancer, 
it's pretty easy to get quite bored and the oh. music's so loud it's not like you can really have conversations yeah no. so I set up these creative sort of safe spaces mm. um, and would fill them with art activities paint um, we were doing clothes swaps so that people if people were just wearing the clothes on their back they had all week um, they could come in and put something else on um, and then there was just a bunch of us who decided we really wanted to host these spaces so we yeah. would sit in there for the night and engage with young people about yeah. different things and that's where I learned that art activities were fantastic engagement tools especially when talking to young people and not having that sort of like direct eye contact or feeling like you're being interrogated about something yeah so we would like make art all night and a lot of young people would talk to me about different things and I suddenly realized I needed some more resources so I engaged with lots of youth organizations yeah. and that's where I was given uh, drug and alcohol pamphlets also times and days where young people would go get free sexual health checkups mm. if any young people were experiencing homelessness I got numbers and places of where they could go where they could even go to food banks to be able to get food or free meals at youth centers so it was just developing this whole concept and then we started getting hired to do this at other people's raves Yes. So creating these really beautiful and so we went out and got lots of free fabrics. We asked for donations from mm -hmm. the community yeah. um, and we would set up these really beautiful spaces. People donated us lights um, and they just became these really wonderful little safe hubs. Mm -hmm. um, our spaces too were also consumption free zones um, just because there was enough of that. So when people came into our spaces, it was just consumption free. You could be high on drugs. That was fine. It was just to give people that visual pause and not trigger anyone else to be like oh that's right hang on I might want to do that again yeah so it's just a place to come and have a break but we found actually from setting up these spaces a lot of people started coming out of the woodwork who were older ravers who were like oh gosh it's nice like I've actually been trying to be sober or I've been trying to cut back and I found that raves were really triggering to be at but now that these spaces are here I'm able to come out again and mm. be around more like-minded people or just not be completely surrounded by yes, it all the time yeah. so it was really incredible to witness and it was starting to create massive cultural shifts within the parties oh that's amazing um, and where did we go from there we started doing drug testing booths because that just seemed like the next step to do was actually make sure that people's supply was exactly what they thought it was. Yeah. Over in Canada, there was a really massive issue with fentanyl entering a lot of the supply with drugs. We lost friends with people overdosing, so we started testing drugs to make sure that, and fentanyl's a really strong opiate, um, I think it's 10 times stronger than heroin, so oh. we were just testing people's drugs, and this was another then fantastic engagement tool that we could have with young people, because you know we could test it, but we could say, do you know what MDMA is? It makes this makes me feel like this and we could go into some cool like chemical talk and chat and it was about providing education which mm. schools and parents and a lot of people aren't equipped or don't do. Young people found it fantastic to be able to have these open conversations. Conversations and where they don't feel judged with where they can talk about that. Yes, yeah. and so then when people are educated, they can make their own informed Yes, exactly. Choices. Yeah, exactly. Back to that self-determination. Yeah. yeah. You, can, you can make, it's your body, you make the decisions you want, but here's some of the information so that yes. when you're making that decision, you know exactly what's going on. Yes, instead of just going there and uh, don't know what happened and then causing harm to themselves. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That was the first chapter. That was my first chapter. Anyway. That's project, only the first. That's, that's my project consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was where it all started in Canada. 
Okay, it sounds already quite a journey already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. And what are some of the critical social work approaches and theories that you bring into this space? Yes, definitely social justice, anti-oppressive, anti-establishment. These are some of the frameworks I, I build off, but as a social worker, I very much advocate for the health and rights of young people and also people who use drugs. I'm very interested in policy and policy change yeah. and also grassroots activism, yeah. really bringing in the community to make mm. the change and then changes coming in from the community and not external bodies coming in to tell us what what to do Ooh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, or how to behave. Or, so it's the community responding to itself, mm. which is actually quite a powerful tool and I've seen incredible things. Like here in Australia, when I came back with the project, so this project's been going on for 10 years now and it's just one of my projects. Yeah. But we've trained over 250 to 300 volunteers wow. in the time with all different party safe training de-escalation, trip sitting. And so that's 300 people who are now out in the festival community Mm -hmm. who know these tools, like overdose response, and then can share this with their friends and the education can continue. So there's no barriers. There's no no barriers to being able to learn how to do this stuff. It's not a university where you've got to pay for... You've got to pay yes, for the education, yeah. you've got to pay for the knowledge. Mm. This is being able to give the knowledge to the community for free. It's very accessible. It's very accessible. Yeah, um, and yeah, from what I'm reading about your program, I say it's very peer-based yes. as also like a community-based. So yes. yeah, it helps me to understand a bit more yeah, about that. So peers, often people ask me what is a peer, and a peer is someone who has lived or living experience of that specific things so we've got peers within the mental health community so people who've experienced depression suicidality there's such a large range of different mental health things so whether you're a peer of that community you might be a peer of parenthood you know what that is like and so we have peers of drug and alcohol so people with lived and living experience Mm. although it's quite it's very different being a peer in the AOD space, alcohol and drug sector, compared to, say, being a peer of mental health. The mental health industry's um, done a lot in the last few years, yeah. in the last decade, to really try destigmatize mental health. Yes. Whereas drug and alcohol is, especially illicit drug taking, is still criminalized. Yes. So there's still a lot of stigma and discrimination attached to being a peer of drug and alcohol. Yeah. And I guess one of the beauties of running a peer space within the music festival and nightlife industry is a lot of people are using drugs at oh, music festivals. Yeah. Uh, so it's not quite an uncommon thing or rare thing that we're doing or mm, participating yeah. in. Mm. And there's so many on our team. For example, at one festival, I might have 60 volunteers on the team. Yes. There's no judgment. That's so And cool. everyone might use different things. I often mm. do a lot of stigma training within my team around mm. drug use too because there's still a bit of like a hierarchical structure sometimes it, it happens especially in the alternative music community yeah uh, where it might be like oh we only use natural drugs mm. and so I do a lot of destigmatizing training around that people in bars have their RSAs so they're trained into yeah. like what's 
a safe amount to give people in a certain amount of time, de-escalation techniques if someone's gotten drunk. And if we had these same measures for all other drugs, I think actually we wouldn't see so many harms done yeah. to people. And yeah. people would maybe feel safe seeking help yes, because exactly. they wouldn't be worried about what yeah. people are going to think of them. Mm. So I, I do a lot of that even within the, the drug, our drug sector and within my teams to yeah, break down stigma. So cool. oh. It's interesting when you mentioned that there's even like stigma in the different level, like there's a hierarchy of different drugs as well. Yes. So people have like stigmas towards this group of people. And then in that group of people, they also have stigmas towards certain type of drugs. Yes. But deep down, it's all because of lacking of information, lacking of resources, education. Yes. Yeah. Drug use is often very much about accessibility. And so we also have different communities and societies within life. For example, there are so many white-collared, blue-collared folks maybe taking cocaine on the weekend. But you might have another group within society and the supply of drugs that are around them, for example, it might be meth. And they're, both of these are stimulants, mm, right? Yeah. Cocaine and meth, they're both stimulants. Or you might have your mum's group, all but their babies, and they're all at the coffee shop buying their caffeine. Yeah, you know? exactly. Don't talk to me. Don't talk to me until I've had my coffee. Imagine oh. if someone was like, don't talk to me till I've had my line of cocaine or don't talk to me till oh I've my. smoked some meth. Like, yes, yes. It's, they're, they're all stimulants, but one's really frowned upon. Exactly. Others are doing it in the closet and not talking to people about it, but within their little group. And then caffeine's just like an open thing that all Australians yeah. are like. Yes, I love this stimulant, and we've all deemed it as accept- acceptable stimulant. Mm. So it, it, it's funny when you start to break some it of down, these things down. down. Yeah, it's also kind of like a that dominant discourse. Yes, no, correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And even with alcohol, it is so common for any type of social event here in Australia to involve alcohol, and we use it often as a lubricant to make ourselves feel better, yes. social anxiety, to have fun. Whereas if we used any other substance in that way, it would be totally frowned upon. Or imagine turning up to your family Christmas and you're like, I've rolled spliffs for yeah, everyone. And yes. Like, <laughs> it's so not acceptable. But Hawaii... Depending on the country. Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Canada, Canada is like, I knew a lot of people who like barely drank, but it was really common mm. to go out to a place and the social thing everyone did was oh. like share some weed. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. It's so, a really cultural thing. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's, oh, that's really interesting. Oh, thank you so much for sharing with us. It's a really interesting conversation. <laughs> yeah. And I remember earlier you mentioned it's very different that the lived experience of DOA and it's mm-hmm. so different from the mental okay. health or, yes. or yeah. AOD. AOD. Right? AOD. Yeah. and other drugs. Yes. They- really separated the alcohol and then other drugs, which is even interesting to look at. Yeah. So like when you mentioned like this so different, the lived experience and lived experience of AOD is so different from other mm. um, spaces is because of the stigma and decriminalizing or is yes. any other things? It's you- definitely criminalization. So it's funny because it's really emerging currently the lived and living experience for AOD here in Australia and so I work for a peak organisation here for people who use drugs and 
there's lots of conversations about how comfortable do people feel about even, say, maybe getting a job title that's identified as lived or living experience. How do we create safe workplaces, say, whether it's at a hospital or within um, a health centre? And how do we make these workplaces safe for someone with a identified position title as a peer when, one, it's still criminal to be doing that behaviour and your work colleagues may not share the same... They, they may not see it as okay, right? Oh. So how are you in your workplace being an identified person who uses drugs and mm. maybe some of your work colleagues are like, I don't use drugs. Oh. So there's still a lot of, there's a lot of work that needs to be done and I really feel like the mm. only way around it is to decriminalise mm. drugs so that at least people don't have the title as a criminal. Yes, placed mm-hmm. on them yeah. because imagine I think back in the day it was actually and in some countries it's still you can go to jail for say attempting suicide or having certain mental health conditions and we've done a lot of work here in Australia to make sure that people with mental health are not criminalized because it is not a criminal thing to have mental health mm. going on yes it's very normal and so by decriminalizing drug use it will allow us to shift the narrative away from that it's bad people do drugs drugs. yeah we have a slogan we use i've made some t-shirts that say nice people use drugs and so it's shifting that narrative away and it's really sad because a majority of the women currently incarcerated in australia Mm. is for drug charges oh and a lot of those women they have children they have households that rely on them financially And often a lot of these people have come from backgrounds where there's possibly a lot of trauma Mm, going on. And so they're criminalised then really for their trauma and a coping mechanism they're using for their trauma. Now, I don't like to think that... I don't think all drug use is a health issue. I think some people like to use drugs because it makes them feel good and we don't often talk enough about that narrative about drug use being fun, drug use can actually be safe. We do it all the time with alcohol, so Mm. I I think, and some people use alcohol really unsafely and we still allow alcohol to be legal, but we put in safety measures around it. Yeah, it's a lot of work to do. It's really hard, like now, when you mention like, People have all these stigmas and uh, around people who use drugs, think yes. that only bad people do that. That's really That's interesting. Yes. But actually, they don't think uh, what, what, what experiences these people are experiencing. They are not experts of their lives because yes. they don't know what they're going through. This is may, maybe the, how they cope with it. And then, but however, they just use, they just see them as people who use drugs and then that's make them bad. Yes, but, that's right. Yeah. People might have so much stuff going on. It might be that there's family or domestic violence going on Mm. it might be stuff from childhood it might be the stresses of work it might be a way that people have just learnt to that's their relaxation tool that's how they wind down rather than having half a bottle of wine at the end of the day it might be that they choose to take this because it does the same thing for them it's always something bigger than just a person instead of just blaming the person like it might it's, be inadequate housing. It might be that yeah. you know there's there's so much that can cause someone um, to make a choice to use drugs. Mm. Um, it might be a lot of people self medicate. 
as well and also going to the doctor is expensive going to a psychologist is expensive and then pharmaceutical drugs can be really expensive so some people are like look I already know what's going on with me and I found this thing and it actually it works it works for me Mm. I'm not going to pay all that money for someone who doesn't really know me to tell me Mm. what I need this is where the self-determination stuff like comes back in yeah yeah oh (laughs) (laughs) quite a lot quite a lot okay uh, are there, you mentioned that there are all these stigmas and decriminalization around this area. And would you like to tell us a bit, um, what are some of the highlights or challenges that you work in this area? Yeah. Okay. Queensland's really shifting and it's been pretty exciting this year to see some of the changes made. So earlier in the year, Queensland government announced that it was going to allow drug checking, yep. pill testing mm-hmm. to happen. Um, which is fantastic because I've been a part of a group of lots of other drug and alcohol organisations and a wonderful service called The Loop, which is a drug checking service that I've worked for as well. We all got together many years ago and started pill testing for Queensland. Yes. And sitting in a room, getting a whole bunch of heads together and brainstorming how can we get this across in Queensland we looked at there's so much research happening overseas because I think the Netherlands have been doing drug checking for something like 25 years. Canada has been doing it for about a decade now. So mm. looking at all the research about what incredible changes it's made and the safety around it and so bringing that, writing to politicians. Yeah. And, so, and it's quite powerful when you can get a group of people from like different organisations together and try and make change. And so that was... A, a highlight definitely this year yeah. was all that sort of hard work shifting and making change yes. here in Queensland. I thought Queensland would maybe be the last state in Australia to ever mm. get drug checking and here we are as so that uh. have been doing drug checking now for I think it's just over a year. Mm-hmm. And so Queensland, second state in Australia. Ooh. So it's well really exciting. The police also announced this year that they're going to make changes and implement a new new program so called drug diversion which is something they've already been doing with cannabis but they're going to start implementing it as of next year for all drug all drugs so that's includes say meth heroin mdma yeah. lsd ketamine so as long as it's a personal amount so i've still there's still some things that need to be worked out because personal amount might be very different for all different people. Yes, it and depends. Also, say you're going to pick up some of your drugs, it's normally more financial, like financially viable to mm. buy it in a larger amount, mm. and it still might be that it's your own personal. So anyway, there is still work that needs to be done there, but it's a positive step that for very small quantities of drugs people are not going to have criminal charges yeah they can have drug diversion which means that they then they've got three chances of drug diversion and they'll have to talk to a telehealth practitioner um put in a bit of like a plan around their drug use and not get a criminal charge which is really fantastic Mm. one issue though when they have implemented this is they also announced though that they're still going to be cracking down on anyone trafficking Mm -hmm. and people could now face up to a lifetime in prison. Oh, really? If they're caught Whoa. trafficking drugs. So that's not really a step in the right direction mm. at all, but we've got a few other positive things happening. And I think hopefully that will also mean the police 
which I've had lots of interactions with police at festivals doing some yeah. really horrible things, oh. like strip strip searching people at our tables coming up. The spaces that we run at festivals now, we do like a harm reduction education space at the front, mm-hmm. which has still got all that creativity, art supplies, cool hangout, and it's very much... You can do other things within the space or you can come and also engage with us and talk about drug and alcohol or mental health, sexual health. So it's not a very, like, invasive. It's like people can take their engagement at their own pace and then our back of house, we normally have a support space for people needing another level of care. We basically will look after anyone who's non-medical, needing Mm. non-medical treatment. Yeah. But we've had people coming up to our desks maybe just grabbing water, a lollipop, whatever, Mm. and grabbed by police and taken to the back of our space and strip searched so i'm hoping that some of these behaviors that we see at festivals might change considering that it's no longer a criminal offense for people to have small supply um i'm hoping to see that sniffer dogs will be removed with there's already been so many coronial inquests done on young people dying at music festivals and police dogs were one that was told that it was a practice that needed to stop. Mm. It's actually been a cause of panic consumption where young people, that was the cause of death, was panic consumption. They saw the police, got really worried, ate all their drugs at once and passed away due to it. That's So, yeah, so I'm hoping that there might be some shifts and changes there. Some challenges have definitely been lack of funding that normally goes mm. into harm reduction in these areas where there's still so much funding that goes into abstinence base so rehabs get a lot of money uh, the police get a lot of money for their supply and demand reduction mm. harm reduction gets the least amount of money every single year from funding and so i've operated my project consciousness for 10 years mm. unfunded oh. um high ground uh which um is another project we've started um it's received very small amounts of funding, um, which we've done amazing things with it. Um, but another great news story this year has been uh, that the Queensland Mental Health Commission yeah. is going to fund High Ground for 18 months so that we can really develop out oh, all of the rest of our resources, awesome. yeah. training that we can deliver to peers mm-hmm. so that they can upskill and educate and teach themselves some fantastic stuff, training that we can do for venues. Yeah. security teams, mm. medics around de-stigma, like destigmatizing and how to be with people who are using drugs and even just some general understanding about drugs. Yeah. And also then to festivals and yeah, a bunch of other areas. Mm, so awesome. Yeah, really so it's awesome. very exciting to finally get some more money to continue the project. The project making more sustainable and to access more people can have access to it and yes. then this project keep going. Yeah, so um, I can finally quit my day jobs because <laughs> I used my day jobs to, to support, support oh, the projects. Wow. So that'll be a really good thing to just have like one, one, one job, job focusing on yeah. what it is I would mm. really love to do. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And earlier you mentioned the... I don't remember that one. Uh, speaking of all the challenges and the struggles we talked about, and also earlier you mentioned that when workers work in that area titled with criminals and you even have that kind of stigmatization from mm-hmm. your co-workers mm-hmm. and also working with these in this area and so how do you like strategically maintain self-care I'm talking about self-care not just about yourself maybe how you like make it sustainable about your project about yourself about your workplace yes. if you 
Can you yes. share a bit more about that? Yeah, so I'm hearing there's two parts to your question there. I'm <laughs> sorry, that's too much. It's fine. So there's two parts. I think one one is about staying safe in the workplace. And I mm. think I've chosen workplaces where I can I feel like I can be my whole self yes. within them. And I'm also careful about how I disclose yeah. personal information. Mm. For a really long time there, I was able to hide under the guise of a peer of the music festival nightlife industry. Yeah. You know, I was a party goer. I loved to attend them, so I knew about them. Mm. And it's only more recently, and I still feel slightly uncomfortable sometimes talking about my own lived and living experience of drug use, but when I think it's done, when I think it's done properly or intentionally or consciously, it can have really impactful change. So, yeah, I've worked in workplaces where peers are respected and valued. Mm. And some of my co-workers in identified roles, they are such fantastic workers. Yeah. And I've watched the impact they have with the clients that come into work. They've really empowered me to break down some of my own barriers around being able to talk about this. Mm. And, yeah, they make me really proud of where peer workers in the AOD section can go and what they're capable of doing. And then in terms of self-care, what have I been doing recently? I've had to pull the brakes. I had to pull up the brakes um, at the end of last year. Mm. We did about 10 festivals and I was working three other day jobs and I'm a single mum. I had a really large burnout at the end of last year and I could feel that my team were really tired as well. We often, when you're with someone in one of our spaces, especially, say, if they're on psychedelics, Mm. uh, we could be with someone for anywhere up to, like, four to ten hours. And in that time, you're doing a lot of active listening. You have to be extremely conscious of your own emotions and behavior because someone on psychedelics can be really sensitive and pick up on a lot of these things so if you're sitting there and you're feeling like I don't want to be here anymore I'm tired or I'm really hungry they're going to be able to pick up on this discomfort and it's going to in turn then make them feel uncomfortable yes so you have to be really aware of how you're feeling so it can be absolutely exhausting. And in that time, you, you might hear their entire life story. If they're mm. able to verbally communicate, yeah, you're going to hear a whole array of things. Some of it can be really funny. Like I've had some people like have me in absolute stitches of laughter where I'm <laughs> crying, I'm laughing so yeah, hard. Yeah. And other times I'm sitting there crying with a person. And so after the end of last year and we had like festivals not paying us appropriately and we don't get any funding and then there's no support for us post festival Mm. i'm normally stepping straight out of a festival back into my another day job so there's no time to do these really like debriefs with the team there's no like employee assistance program Mm. that we can offer we once there was once a death on site at a festival that we stepped in to help a lot of the people out And after that festival, I had an organisation down in Victoria reach out and Mm. offer our team their employee assistance program to help us debrief and give us counselling. But otherwise, there's a very big lack of support for what we do. Mm. So at the end of last year, I thought, you know what, it's time to actually take um, 
lot of festivals was declining financially anyway. So it was a perfect time to put that project on hold, focus on high ground, which is all background work. Mm going for grants and doing these types of things that are, are really hard to do when you're constantly in sort of service delivery mode. Yes, yes. Um, so that was nice and I had a really quiet year. I ate lots of food, I slept a lot, I've binge watched so much RuPaul's Drag Race, it's not even funny. <laughs> so watching Happy, dancing, spending more time with my daughter, mm. listening to lots of music that I love, Yay. doing bits of travel, taking my shoes off. Um, with nature yeah taking my (laughs) shoes off yeah self-care is hard and I I also have a lot of issues with like organizational um forms of self-care because it's like really put onto the individual um Mm. to make time outside of their busy work schedule to do self-care um and that often might involve having to pay for your own classes to do something um, if you've got kids, sometimes it's like, where do you fit that in from your work day to picking up the kids to making the dinner? Like, and so, I don't know, when organizations talk about self-care, I sometimes get really annoyed and I'm like, how about you, you allow us to do some self-care during the work day? And maybe it's that work, there's like a, an allowance where even work might pay for one class of something during your work day yes. to go attend for that week, exactly. you know, like I can go to a dance class. I'll go take an hour and a half mm, off. I can mm. go to a dance class. It's paid by work. And that's my form of self-care. Yes, exactly. Because like now organization talk about self-care is in the end, everything put, is put on the person yes. instead of the organization do something. How about you provide some uh, resources and you give us some support? Like yes. we mentioned, you mentioned like a uh, paid, paid uh, class. An, yes. Yeah, an yeah. allowance or time in work. If you're, Normally, if uh, a workplace is talking about self-care, it's because the workplace itself might be inflicting stress or trauma onto Um, the worker because mm. of the type of work they're doing. Yet, it's the individual's responsibility to look after this stress or trauma being caused Mm. by the workplace. Mm. But there's just this small little policy that's got... Make sure you look after yourself <laughs> mm. <laughs> to take the responsibility off the workplace. And, yeah, it's an interesting one. Neoliberalism? Yes, that's <laughs> Neoliberalism right. I play. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, I was, like, really failing you when you mentioned that you went to that space with your service user. Mm-hmm. Like, in that discomfort, even though you feel really down, you show your emotions or anything, but that person might pick it up and then yes. they may not be willing to share anything with you or they will not be comfortable in that space as well. I find it's really hard. You don't feel well yourself, but you have to be there, show up, and yes. also put on like a professional face for yourself as well. Yeah, I find, at least in my own workspace, say in the consciousness at a festival, mm such a beautiful space to work in it's quite easy for me to show up so one I'm out in nature which I love we have these big beautiful airy stretch tents we spend up up to a day or two decorating it like making it look super beautiful and then it's a very open workspace too and then we have like big beautiful teams and because we have a lot of volunteers in the space people are only doing short shifts so six hours so a lot of people come in with fresh energy and sometimes I feel revitalized just from my team. Oh, awesome. And also we're very supportive of each other. So someone, it's very okay to acknowledge within my workspace like, hey, I'm actually feeling really energetically low today. So mm. my emotional capacity for someone's quite low. 
is it okay if I spend my time in this space today, like maybe on the oh. education desk oh. rather than the support space? And so we look after each other that way. Oh. And that's about being able to be authentic, being able to... Supportive. What's the word I'm looking for? Being able to just show up and say, this is how I'm feeling and feel safe and supported. And I think there's not a lot of workplaces where you're allowed to talk about your emotions or because of neoliberalism and you've got clients booked back to back that day, you can't really show up and go, oh, look, I've got really low emotional capacity today. I maybe can only see one out of my five clients. Mm. Whereas in my workspace, because we're all there as a community and showing up as community, Mm. there's no way I'd expect someone to hold space for someone if they're struggling themselves. Oh, that's cool. So there's enough of us to be able to balance that and share, share the emotional load. Yeah, and also still we keep that human nature, have that organic working space. Yes. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. that's really awesome. Yeah, we're not robots. No, we're no. not. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely <laughs> Even not. Life, life has to be robots, I think. So yeah, no. Okay. I forgot to ask earlier, when we talked about the harm reduction, but I know, I don't know, in other areas, you in other areas or your co they also mentioned about harm minimization. I Would you like to explain? Explains us a bit about what's the difference between harm reduction and harm minimization. Oh uh, yeah, I think we did talk about this right at the beginning. Uh, yeah, we talked the national drug strategy. Yes, There's the three pillars. So, harm minimization, it's a part of the national drug strategy. So you've got under that, you've got supply reduction, demand reduction, and harm reduction. Harm reduction receives the least amount of funding from the Australian government. Um, as a part of this like national drug strategy and harm reduction is really about acknowledging that people use drugs, people may not stop using drugs and so what are we able to implement to be able to keep people safe mm. if they continue to use drugs. So yeah. Unbiased, factual education mm. which is what I do with my project High Ground, creating lots of resources and even responding to, I wrote a booklet last year, for it was aimed at women but we covered topics around pregnancy pregnancy and parenting and a lot of people don't talk about pregnancy and drug use it's very taboo yeah Um, so we talked about harm reduction strategies and and then even like some cool facts about hormonal shifts in women and certain drugs how they might affect you differently depending where you are on your cycle Thank you for uh, taking the time to share with us today. Uh, Brooke, um, before we wrap up, is there anything else you would like to add or expand on today? I think one thing I'd like to say is I highly encourage people, um, if you have an idea, and I'm such a big believer of community grassroots activism. I feel like here in Australia, a lot of the time, we wait for funding to be able to do anything but I highly encourage people to be creative, think entrepreneurial, gather in other people who are thinking about the same things or feel passionate about the same things. And you can do a lot with not a lot of money when Mm. you've got passion and community. Yeah. Like when we started The Conscious Nest, we had no money ourselves. Mm. Uh, So we went to a lot of recycling centres to be able to buy fabrics and lamps. We asked for donations. We started putting on events and using those door, like the door cover charge, to be able to fund more of the project. Um, And so there's so many different ways you can start to build and 
make it all happen. Mm. And so I just highly encourage anyone who has an idea or feels really strongly about something, just start it. Yeah. I'm 10 years down the track now from where I started all of that. And I would have never have figured where I am now. Mm. And even with High Ground about to be getting great funding to be able to go further um, and consciousness really like in high demand all the time, um, I just think that yeah don't wait I know um, I was speaking to someone in the states because um, a lot of sort of non-government or community projects they don't get a lot of government funding funding. so they have to really think entrepreneurial all the time Mm. and so you've got safe over there who provide drug and alcohol harm reduction education and party safe supplies they started selling drug testing kits and so now they're turning over a $1 million profit selling their drug testing kits, which now funds them to continue to running their kiosks for free for events all over the country. There's just different ways to do things. Just start it, gather your troops. And then see how it goes. Come up with a plan, Mm. do meetings, yeah, make it happen. We've now got drug checking here in, in Queensland and that was all of us for free on our own time coming together to strategize about Mm. how we could make change. Yeah, it has to start somewhere. It has to start somewhere, yes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Thank you, Brooke. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was really a great conversation and very insightful knowledge I learned from you today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Thank you. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this critical conversation. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, feel free to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or YouTube. And if you would like to keep up with us outside of the podcast, feel free to follow our socials on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for Critical Conversations, the number four, SW, all in one word. We look forward to you joining us next week.